The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. We're studying this chapter in relation to the instructions given for priests that served in tabernacle worship. The basic meaning of worship is to hold up, to hallow something that is worthy of veneration. And worthy reflects this, uh, worship rather reflects the worthiness that makes the gospel, or makes rather the object of, of our worship of reverence um, exalted to stand out, to be recognized. And in these studies of, of Israel's worship, I hope we do agree in our understanding of why God deserves to be worshipped. I mean, beyond the fact that God is our creator, he gives us reasons to worship him. It's more than just our duty to worship Him, but He gives us reasons why we would want to worship Him. And the tabernacle study, what we're going through, is a display of of God's grace in pictures. And these graces or pictures are about His grace in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins and to bring us into relationship with Him that far exceeds the worship of heathen gods who were neither personal nor loved by the people who worshipped them. The tabernacle is the revelation of the character of God. Uh, Each part of it says something about his marvelous work and the redemption of sinners. When God gave Moses these instructions, they were indicative of heaven and what God is like in heaven. Hebrews says that the furnishings and all of these things that were in the tabernacle were were a made after a pattern of those things that are in heaven. And so the study actually becomes a glimpse of heaven that's come down to earth. And literally, in the New Testament, it tells us that God tabernacled with us. John 1.14 says that He dwelt with us. And that same word for tabernacle is used there, which means that He pitched His tent among us, that He tabernacled with us. Well, that part of the worship of tabernacle the part that concerns us in these studies is sacrifices and the participation of priests in those sacrifices, which is a preparation for the final messages that we'll bring in this series that are about um, God's greatest day of sacrifice, Israel's day of sacrifice, which is the day of atonement. So the priest who made these sacrifices was prepared for it as much as sacrifices were prepared. And we must see the importance of both of these, sacrifice and priest, because Christ was both. He was the offerer and the offerer. Now the text verse that that sets the tone for our studies in verse number 2, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. Our concern is the symbolism of these garments that were made to glorify God and to reflect His beauty. These garments were gloriously beautiful, but more important is what what they represent in spiritual types of glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. And when the priest 
put on these clothes. He was beautiful in them, but he only became so because of what they represented, because they do represent Jesus Christ. Each piece of the wardrobe that he put on presents some other picture of Christ, some special thing about him that shows he is altogether lovely, that he is indeed worthy of our worship, glorious in all of his attributes. I want to show you the picture of the high priest again. This is the priest in all of his uh, full dress. And then I want to point you to the parts of this outfit that we want to talk about this evening. You can see at the end of the blue part of his garments, the white sleeves and the and the uh, down at the bottom of the hem of the robe, you see the white there. Of course, we've discussed that. That's the undergarments. And uh, there's a white linen belt that's underneath all of this that you don't actually see, and that's what held those inner garments in their place. And then the blue that's on top of that is called the robe of the ephod. That is a solid piece of blue. It's the dominant color of his outfit. And then over this blue robe of the ephod, there is another garment which is called the ephod. That is the ephod itself. And this is the multicolored piece of blue, purple, and scarlet. And that ephod was the topic of our last discussion. And you can't see it very well in this picture, but on the shoulders are two stones that served as buttons to fasten the front and the back of the ephod and to close it at the neck. So the priest would just slip that garment over his head and then he would fasten it on each of, the, each of his shoulders with these two stones that, that uh, were used as buttons. And on these two stones are engraved the names of the children of Jacob, which of course are the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, six names are engraved on each of these stones, and they represent the complement of the nation. And they're put there to show that, that God knows all of his people, and that he knows the names of every one of his people. He never forgets them. The shoulders also symbolize ruling strength. And names on the shoulders show that Christ is strong enough to carry all of our burdens. And then they also teach us that, that we're to love one another, and for us to follow the example of Christ who bore our burdens on Him. And so we are to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as the Word of God teaches, as His church, we are the body of Christ. And so we are to be His shoulders, His hands, His feet. And we are to help those that are hurting and downtrodden. And I note again this afternoon that much of the time... When we preach, we do have to preach with negative tones, sometimes in harsh tones. I, I think I might have even used some of that this morning in the message. But then there's this other side that we get the opportunity to talk about, the affirmative side. We get to talk about the positive things, the compassion of the merciful and loving God who expects us to be as He is. And that is to be tender and loving and compassionate towards each other. These things are, are taught in tabernacle worship with sacrifices, the priest, and all of these other things. Now this evening I want to I want to begin by pointing out another part that goes with the ephod, and it's not something I mentioned last time. And this is the piece that you see around the priest's waist. And I didn't make that a, a separate part of our outline because the symbolism is much like we learned with the uh, belt or the sash that went under these garments, the white one. But if you look in verse number 8 of this text... The belt is described, and it's termed the curious girdle. Verse 8, And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. 
The word curious is curious. Because that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. What does that mean? It's a curious girdle. Other translations would use words like artistic or skillfully made. And that is what it means to the modern reader. An artistic, a very skillfully made uh, belt that goes on uh, around his waist. It's made of the same material as the ephod, fine twine linen, same colors are in it, the blue, purple, and scarlet. But then there's another thread that's sewn into it. It's a thread of gold. And in Revelation 1.13, where we find the description of Christ as John saw him in the Revelation, it, it talks about this girdle, that Christ wears this girdle. It says, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. That's a reference to what we're reading here. And returning to that thought of curious or artistic or skilled, the men who made these clothes were miraculously gifted craftsmen. After the instructions were given to Moses, uh, God told him to make all these things, these finely crafted things, all these beautiful clothes to make. And then the artistic work of of uh, things like the table of showbread, the golden candlestick, the altars, and all of those things. I think that maybe Moses got the word from God that he needed to make these things. He must have thought, how in the world are we going to do this? Moses may have been just like me, all, all thumbs. You, you can't make anything. I can't make anything. Well, God knows how to take care of those things because when he calls for a work, when he says, I need you to do this, he always gifts people to do it. In the New Testament, we find the same thing with, with spiritual gifts, that God gifts His people individually with gifts that uh, He requires to do His work. And in Exodus 36, verse 1, it talks about the men who, who made these things. It says, Then wrought Bezalel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that God had commanded. So God raised up the men who, who had the ability, and He gave them the ability to do this. So these workmen took gold, and they spun it into a fine, thin thread, thread and wove it into this beautiful sash. That gold stands for Christ's deity, and it was beautiful to have that golden color along with all the other colors that perfectly matched every accessory to His outfit. And as I was thinking about the curious girdle, I, I thought about how the clothing of the priest is not only beautiful, but every piece is very carefully put into its proper place. The, the girdle held the ephod in its place. It was a smart access to the uh, accessory to the entire design. The instructions are precise. The colors, the threads, the, the placement is all exactly where God wanted it to be. And that made me think about how precise that God wants us to be in our teachings of the doctrines of the Word of God so that we make sure everything that we say perfectly fits together with other things that we say. Now I remember a few years ago when Bob and Bronwyn came to Berean. And let me say, most of the time I'm fairly irreverent with Bob as he is with me. And uh, Bob and Bronwyn, though, with all, the, with all the fun that I have and all the jokes that we make back and forth to each other, are among the upper echelon of the faithful in this church. Bob and Bronwyn came to us in 2007. Hard to believe that the 10th anniversary 
uh, of their coming to Berea was back in September. But for 10 years they've been with us. And when Bob first came, now it's time to get a little bit more irreverent, but when Bob first came, those were the days of the ponytail. And uh, I wish that we had preserved a picture of that. I think it would make a great accessory for our membership board outside. Uh, but before Bob and Bronwyn became members of our church, they came to my office for a talk. Prospective members always make their way into my office. That is, they go into the Holy of Holies to sit down with me and... There's where I hear a testimony of their faith and their church background and find out about them. Um, and one thing that Bob told me is a phrase that has stuck with me these ten years. And I, if, if ever I use it, I got it from Bob. When he, he talked to me about sloppy theology. Uh, this is what he talked to me about in my office that day. He said, we are tired of sloppy theology. And Bob said, we like Berean because there's no uncertainty about where the church stands. We teach the Bible without reservation. We believe it. We make sense of it. And I hope that everyone appreciates that we think that these things are important and we ought to pay attention to all the details that are in the Scriptures. And so I try to not, not, not to overlook things, and that might be to your grief because there are some subjects that I teach you think, well, he should have been done with that a long, long time ago. But if it's the Bible, I want to know why it's there. Why did God say that? I want to know what it means. How does that fit in with all the other doctrines? You see, what we don't want is mismatches. So we look at the priest's clothing and we think, well, we don't want to see. We don't want to see orange and pink together. Letha, would you ever wear orange and pink together? <laughs> and that's why you're not a priest. That's, there's just some things that don't go together. And that's my humble opinion, but... Like a, we're having trouble right now picking out new carpet for here. I don't know what matches, but orange and pink don't seem to go together for me. But I know these things. I, I know when doctrines don't go together. I know when you say something in one area that's wrong, you're going to end up with a problem in some other area. So we don't like sloppiness. Everything must be in the proper place. And you see that often in the Scripture, things are put in order. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, um, he must have been overwhelmed by the problems that he saw in Corinth. Their immorality, their, their inconsistencies, their uh, just, just everything seemed to be upside down at Corinth. And so he was dealing with them in chapter 11 on the Lord's Supper. And um, he explained to them, and what, pretty much what he said was, let's get this thing right, Let, let's get this part right on the Lord's Supper, and then I'll set the rest in order when I come. So you look at these clothes, there's order. There's undergarments, there's the robe with the ephod, there's the ephod with the stones, the curious girdle that holds it, in, holds it in place. There is no sloppiness here. Everything's neat and trim. It's like military grade. It's got to be right where it's supposed to be. And when it was, it was beautiful and glorious. And can't we say that when our doctrine is in the proper order, when it's precise, that it glorifies Christ? Truth glorifies Christ. Christ. We want no confusion about Him. We want to be accurate with our doctrine because we don't want to leave the wrong impressions of Christ. Now, there are many directions that I could go on that. We, we could take every doctrine in the Bible and we could say, if you don't get this right, somewhere you'll find things don't fit. Some preachers are so bad about doctrine that I think that they might have a curious girdle tied around their eyes. Uh, they stumble around like they're in the dark. 
But then maybe I could say it in a different way. Many ministries are stuck on clothing, and so I could say the neatness and the order and the arrangement of clothes is an indication that when you come to worship God, you ought not to look like you just rolled out of bed. Uh, Preachers in the modern church often dress that way. Stubby beards and bed bed heads and clothes that look like they're shrink-wrapped. And... They, they just want to fit in with the world. They, want to, they don't want anybody to be uncomfortable with them, and so they just dress like everybody else dresses. I don't want to make this a doctrine, but I, I don't see that with the high priest. I don't see anything common or ordinary about him. His clothes were distinct. He didn't dress down for worship. He dressed up about as high and as formal as you can get. And why did he do that? Because he knew that he was a representative of Jesus Christ. He's got to look the part. This is all about the glory and beauty of Christ. So I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Maybe there is a lesson here. And if you want to want me to be precise, as I promised that I would be, then just look and see if I'm not the fashion god or so I've been told. But then there's uh, still another point that we might want to make here. And that is that all Christian service has its proper place. The priest... Didn't, didn't say, well, you know something? I think this belt, this, this, uh, this curious girdle, I think this would look really snappy as a scarf. This would make a great ascot. Wouldn't this be spiffy if I just tied this around my neck? Well, if you did, God would make a tourniquet of it. And the tourniquet around your neck doesn't usually work out so well. I remember a few years ago that one of my wife's sisters had a nosebleed. And uh, it It wouldn't stop bleeding, so her other sister said to her, Quick, quick, get a tourniquet and tie it around your neck. There wasn't any love lost in her family at all. Israel, though, they they kept order. Moses didn't do Aaron's job. Others in Israel dared not to go into the tabernacle, do the priest's work. You see, in God's church, everybody and everything is supposed to be in its proper place. So God doesn't require you to do the pastor's job, not to stand in his place. We're to let the deacons do their job. And then those of you that have jobs in the church, you just do your job. That's what God wants you to do, as simple as that. Just do your job and be in the place where God wants you to be. Now, moving on, uh, you know, I started working on this sermon and I kind of ended up in a place that I didn't intend to go. And where I do need to be is on the next piece that we want to talk about. So we'll go there. The next piece of the clothing, in the picture, if we can, can you roll me back to that picture for just a second? Uh, in the picture, you see a square, a square piece on top of the ephod. It has a border around it, and on that are 12 colorful stones. That part is the breastplate. So we're going to talk about the breastplate for a few minutes, which stands for the compassion and the wisdom of Christ. The breastplate is described in the section that begins in verse number 15. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. After the work of the ephod thou shalt make it. Of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine twine linen shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set in, set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. 
and the third row, a ligure, and an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper, they shall be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name, shall they be according to the twelve tribes. Then following this, if you want to read more later, is the way that this breastplate was held onto the body. There are rings at the top that, that a golden chain would go through and that passed through these rings and, and um, held it to the shoulders of the ephod. At the bottom there are two more rings and there's a lace, a blue lace that went through that and that held it securely in place above the curious girdle. But I want you to look at verse number 29, which I, I really do think is a very, very touching verse. If you consider this is about Christ, you come to this verse and I think this almost puts a lump in your throat. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. When he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Aaron was to wear this upon his heart. Now unlike those two stones that are on the shoulders, two stones that have six names on each one, here we have twelve precious stones, and on each of them is the name of one of the tribes. Aaron had these names over his heart. How does that remind us of Christ? Well, this is one of those things that I, I hardly think that you need a preacher to explain. If you are a child of God, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. That the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has his name, our names on his heart. So this, then, we are close to Christ's heart. Bob said we're not sloppy in our theology, so we do need to tighten this up a little bit and be precise. Two stones on the shoulders have names engraved in them, grouped in pairs of six. But on the breastplate, there are these 12 stones. Each one is different, and each one has its own name. Each tribe has its own stone. Now, if you were to do some studying on this, you'll you read some different things, and you'll find that there are people that want to attach a meaning to each of these stones. They try to break that down and figure out, uh, well, each stone is a different stone, so what does that stone stand for? I'm not going to try to do that because we're uncertain about it. We, we can't be more precise than the Scripture is precise. But we are certain of this, that God will remember Israel. That's the purpose of this, that God will remember Israel. Covenant theologians do not believe that God will remember Israel. Not at least in the way that we do. They believe that God is finished with Israel. And that Israel has been replaced by the church in the New Testament. Now if you want a term for that, it's very simply called replacement theology. And that is, the, the Israel doesn't count any longer. The church takes over for Israel and the nation has no more significance. That idea was actually reflected in the Reformers' teachings by often having a very, very strong bias against Jews. You would never have called the Reformers Zionist, not like you do many of today's evangelicals. And we, we might gladly accept the label of Christian Zionists, although uh, our viewpoint is somewhat modified by, than others because we believe the Bible clearly teaches there is a future for Israel and that future will be in the uh, millennial kingdom of Christ. We also believe, uh, I hope that you agree with me on this, that we believe that 
the United States should be very careful about its treatment of Israel. We should be supportive of Israel's claims to the land. And we ought not to be against Israel because the Bible teaches that anybody who is against Israel will not fare so well. So we're best on Israel's side. I also think that we ought to agree, and maybe you don't, I think we ought to agree that our embassy ought to be moved to Jerusalem so that we show a very strong support for Israel that we stand with them. We disagree with covenant theologians. We don't see any church in the Old Testament. Israel was in no sense a church in covenant with God as it is in the New Testament. Now, some of you, I'm not sure, maybe you won't like my next comment, but I think it needs to be made. And that is that the King James translators added to some of the confusion that we have by reflecting their covenant theology in the translation of Acts 7.38. Now, this, this might not have been intentional, but anything that needs to be explained, uh, I think, produces confusion. And this is in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, which is the history of Jewish rejection of the prophets and then of Christ. And this verse, Acts 7.38, says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now what the translators did, they chose to translate the Greek word ekklesia, normally translated as church in the New Testament. They chose to use it in this place when they should have used the translation as assembly, just as they did in Acts 19.32, where clearly there the church is not intended. In Acts 19.32 it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. So that word assembly there, same word, ekklesia in the Greek, and this is the word they chose to translate as church in Acts 7.38. Now maybe that's not, not purposeful, Uh, The translators um, didn't intend, I know, that Israel in the wilderness was the same in the sense of a body of Christ in the New Testament. The King James Version, I think, is the best translation that we can use, but we still need to remember it is a translation. And it is subject sometimes to translators' opinions. And so there may be a misleading translation here, uh, maybe not intentional, but it is certainly misleading. Now, oddly enough about that, and I don't favor or support this, but, but the ESV and the NASB, which happens to be favored by covenant theologians, translates Acts 7.38, Ecclesia there, as congregation. Now, it would fit them better if they had said church, because that's pretty much what they believe, but they said congregation. So, go figure. Sometimes we can't figure out those things, why, why somebody who needs it doesn't do it, and somebody who doesn't need it does do it. I don't think the translators, King James translators, are dishonest. I think they're guilty of an inaccuracy in that point. At least, I think they would have kept us from inquiring further if they were just consistent with this. Keep church, keep the church in the New Testament. It doesn't belong in the Old Testament. But in any case, we do know there was no, there was no church in the wilderness, and we know the church is not a replacement of Israel. Israel and the church are separate, they are distinct, And both have a part to play in end-time prophecy. And how do we know that? Well, there's a lot of arguments that we could make concerning it, but we want to concentrate on just one. What we find right here in our text tonight, and that is this. Names. 
God remembers names. Now let's look at two scriptures that describe the future when God will definitely remember Israel. The first is in Revelation chapter 7, so you can turn there and we can read about events that will happen in the tribulation where God will call out many witnesses to preach the gospel. And in that time, the church has already been removed from the world. The church has been caught up. It's raptured. As we preached a few weeks ago, the church won't be in that time, but it's gone to heaven. And so with no church, who is going to preach the gospel? Well, we have the answer in these verses. Revelation 7, verse number 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Zebulun, all of these twelve thousand. Then of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed, 12,000. That seems very clear that God's not going to forget Israel. He has plans for them. So obviously, covenant theologians need to explain that away. How are you going to get rid of that? Well, they are, they're very inventive in their attempts. One interpretation offers that, well, th this can't be literal because we read through that list and Dan isn't mentioned. There must be something there in that then that Dan's not mentioned, so this can't be a literal list. But it doesn't really matter what your interpretation of the passage is. Nobody knows why Dan is not in that list. Don't come and ask me why Dan is not in the list. I don't know. But I would say this, although explanations are offered, they're all conjecture, we don't know. I can say that is a loose nail to hang your objections on because it is obvious here this passage refers to Israel. Now the second passage that we would look at with names is in Revelation 21. If you turn there, we see here that it describes the new Jerusalem. And you'll note that it is the new Jerusalem. That's a reference, isn't it? That's a reference to Israel. That's a reference to Zion. Otherwise, if we were Roman Catholic, we might read something like this. There's a new Rome. Or a new Washington. If we're crazy, we might say that. But no, it's the New Jerusalem. And that connects directly to the city of David. That's the city of the Jews. How do you get into that city? Well, there's a wall surrounding it. It's high and there's a gate on each side. The north, south, and east, and west. Scripture always starts with the east side. So we see that in the 12th verse. And had a wall great and high and had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and names written thereon, which are what? The names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Well, that's kind of peculiar, isn't it? Why are the names of Israel written in the gates of the New Jerusalem if God's going to forget Israel? Now, in our, in our text in Exodus, the precious stones have names engraved on them. These are the names that are on Aaron's heart. Now we go back to Exodus 28:29, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So these stones are on his heart when he goes into the holy place. That is, when he goes into the presence of God and the stones are a memorial there. And for how long will they be a memorial? 
Well, we look at that for just a minute. There are some who argue about the continuity, and I give perhaps a little bit on this issue. Perhaps the meaning is that as long as Israel is a nation, then the priest was to wear this breastplate with all the names. Then that would end when Christ came, because there is no earthly high priest needed any longer. And so that would be true. There's no place today for a human to wear this breastplate and and to have the names on it. So I get that, and perhaps that interpretation works. But I find something peculiarly interesting in Ezekiel, where it tells us that the kingdom of Christ will come on the earth, and then in that kingdom, there is going to be a new temple. In a future time, there will be a new temple. And if you read from Ezekiel chapter 40 on to the end of the book, you'll find a lot of details about this temple, and also something else. A symbolic restoration of priesthood. So maybe the Lord will remember Israel's tribes in that millennial kingdom. And when we talk about Israel, isn't it only this? Isn't it just the tribes? What else is the nation of Israel but this? It's just the tribes. It's the people of Israel. Twelve tribes of Jacob. Who else is a Jew but them? So I think of these names written in stones... In the gates of the, inscribed on the gates of the New Jerusalem, that is an indication that God will not forget Israel. I said we're going to look at two scriptures, but I'm just going to throw in a couple more for good measure. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. What did Paul think about his countrymen in Israel? Would God forget Israel? In Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham or the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Then verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written... There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now you can tie that in to the revelation when Israel is primary in the tribulation and in the millennium. So the current age of the church will end and then God, it says, will go back to Israel and save them. There aren't many Jews that are saved now. They haven't been since Paul wrote this, but they will be because God won't forget them. So who are are the 144,000? They're from the tribes of Israel. They're saved. They will witness. And because of that witness, many more Jews will be saved. Now I think in that we see the love and compassion of Christ. And I can't believe that God would be specific about this. To be sure that these are names that get in before him into the sanctuary. Only to say, I didn't really mean that. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really mean that I'm going to remember Israel. No, what we have here are types. Isn't that what we're studying? Types of things that are to be. Types that will be fulfilled. 
You go through the Old Testament and you see this continually. Israel, Israel failing. We see God with every reason to cast them off as a people. But did God do it? No. He always said to Israel, I'm going to bring you back. And he had to whip them and chastise them and lock them out for a while. But he always said, you will be back. And that's because the sovereign God will bring them back. Psalm 65 verse 4 says, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and cause it to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So in every warning and every chastisement, there's always a promise, Israel will come back. And haven't you read in the Scriptures so many times this phrase, they will return with singing unto Zion. Now let me ask you something about this. If God isn't faithful to remember Israel when He said that He would, can you trust Him to remember you? Can you have confidence that God will not fail you if He fails Israel? Oh, we have to see in this, there is a type of eternal security. In this we see the preservation of all God's people. That's true for Israel, friends, and that's true for you. The promise is the same for you, that your name is on Christ's heart and He will never leave you as He shall never forsake you. Your name was on His heart when He came into the world. Your name was on His heart when He went to God's altar that was the cross. And His purpose when He came was to save you and He's not going to fail to get you all the way home. Now next time I, I want to spend some time expanding that doctrine, what flows out of it, but... We need to return to names and significance as we do that. And we're just uh, too close on time to do that now. And I want your minds fresh when we begin to talk about that. So we've got to nail down doctrine. We must be precise. There are no accidents in theology. You might, you might accidentally find yourself somewhere else, but you will not accidentally find yourself to God. You're not going to accidentally get to Him. Names are not written by accident. These things happen on purpose. So we'll stop there. We'll look at it again next time. We have a magnificent Christ. We have a detailed God. And so we must have order in our doctrine. We must have the right pictures to see who God is and what He did. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You now and we thank You for remembrance. We thank you, Lord, for a memorial. You have our names on your heart. There's not one child of God sitting here tonight who a believer in Jesus Christ, saved by the blood of Christ, sanctified through that blood, that will fail to see God in heaven. Every one of us, Lord, who has our faith in you, have this sure promise that we will die and go to heaven and if we don't die then we'll see you in the rapture and go up to be with you we thank you lord for for the knowledge that we have of that persevering grace of, of jesus christ and preserving grace of jesus christ to see us all the way home that's the benefit of knowing this great high priest thank you lord for that wonderful word that we received tonight on this in jesus name we pray amen Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.